Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. You can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. And if you don't mind, we're just going to dive right in this morning because there's a lot in this text and there's a lot I've got to say. So is that cool with everybody? Just to dive right in? Okay. Last week we took a little detour with the baptisms, which was a glorious day in the life of our church. But if you remember, two weeks ago, we looked at Paul and his missionary journey, the first missionary journey of Paul, the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas off on their first journey. They go to the island of Cyprus, if you remember, and they encounter a, um, a false prophet, a, a, uh, a person that was basically a magician, a demonic opposition, and that didn't stop the gospel from going forward because the governor of the city actually became saved. And so they're on that island of Cyprus, but now they're going north up to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to the area of Galatia which is where Paul is going to later on write his, his book to the Galatians. And they go to another area, and it's there that we see Paul's first recorded sermon in the book of Acts, much like Peter's sermons. And so we're going to dive right into the text this morning and find out what happens when Paul goes forward with the gospel. So let's look at Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Now, there's a lot of text here where we're going to try to navigate through it the best that we can this morning. So starting in verse 13 of Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made this people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it, and for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness." And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do, I what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. <clears throat> Though he found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him, have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree 
and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers, that this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Therefore, he also said in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his forefathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. <clears throat> now let's first of all talk about the setting. This is the part of Acts where we start getting out the map. So let's put the map on the screen. And you can see that they leave from Antioch, which is their home base. They go across the Mediterranean Sea to the island of Cyprus. They're leaving Paphos, which is the town north of there. And they go up to modern-day Turkey, which is Galatia. And they go up to another town called Antioch of Pisidia. So they're in a different Antioch than the Antioch that they started out from. And so that's where they're headed, up there at the top. And they go into the Jewish synagogue on that Sabbath day. And so it wasn't uncommon for um, traveling rabbis to be given permission to give a sermon. And so Paul and Barnabas are in the, in the Jewish synagogue on Sabbath day. They hear the reading of the Law and Prophets. They hear a, a, a sermon about the Old Testament, and then they invite Paul to come and to be um, giving a message. And so what Paul does here is he stands up, which was uncommon in the synagogue, by the way. He stands up, and he begins to recount a history of Israel to those that are sitting there, those Jewish people that would have understood the history of the Old Testament. And so basically, what Paul does is he starts with Abraham. He says, God chose Abraham to be the father of many nations. You got Abraham, you got Isaac, you got Jacob. They became the patriarchs, and then God gave them great numbers as they were living in the land of Egypt, and then God delivered them through the land of Egypt, through the Red Sea crossing. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then God raised up another leader, Joshua, that took them into the promised land. They conquered the promised land. They got their inheritance, but then and they got disobedient, they got idolatrous, and so these uh, nations started coming in and taking them over, and God raised up military leaders called judges, and then the next one on the scene was Samuel the prophet, and then they asked for a king, and then, then God gave them Saul, and then, and then Saul was a bad king, so God removed Saul, and then God raised up David. Okay, there's half of the Old Testament in 30 seconds for you, okay, right there. That's what Paul does. He gives you a little history here of the Old Testament. And everybody in the audience is probably nodding their head thinking, we know this stuff, we know Abraham, we know David, we know all these stories. And then all of a sudden, Paul's going to drop the bomb on them. He's going he, to say something that's going to perk their attention. Basically, he says, okay, it goes all the way up to David. David is the king, but David's not the ultimate king of Israel. Notice what he says there in verse Let's find out where the verse is. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. So all the Old Testament's pointing towards 
Jesus coming as a savior from the offspring of David. Now they're starting to get very uncomfortable in this Jewish synagogue because up to this point, everything's about the Old Testament, but all of a sudden it's about Jesus of Nazareth coming. And then Paul's going to shift gears. He's given you the Old Testament in a nutshell. Then he's going to shift gears to John the Baptist, the precursor to Jesus. He says how John the Baptist came preaching repentance, setting the stage for Jesus. And then he begins to talk about what Jesus has done. Notice in verse 24, he says, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And then down in verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent this message of salvation. Paul says the message of salvation has come to us, Israelites, the Jews, through Jesus Christ, who was prophesied in the Old Testament. But what happened when Jesus came? Did the Jewish people receive him as their Messiah? No. Paul goes on to say they were blinded, they were hardened, they put him on trial, they crucified him. Notice what he says in verse 27. He says, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Basically, what what Paul's saying is every week, Jesus is pointed to in the scriptures, but they didn't recognize it. They didn't see it. They rejected him. And and even though he was not guilty, even though he was innocent, they had him given over to Pilate. It's interesting when you think about Pilate. If you go back and look at Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 24, on three occasions, Pilate says three times, I find nothing guilty in Jesus. I find this man innocent. I find no reason to condemn this man. Three times, Pilate says he's innocent. But Pilate was a coward. He gave in to the crowd, and he had Jesus crucified. Notice what verse 29 says. In verse 29, it says, And when they had carried him out, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. All that was written about Jesus. All of those Old Testament passages that were pointing to Jesus dying on the cross, they fulfilled. Probably Isaiah 53 and and all those other passages of Scripture that speak about Jesus. And he talks about hanging him on a tree. Now, we would often call it a cross, but Paul and Peter called it a tree when they were talking to a Jewish audience because in the Jewish mind, being hung on a tree was a sign that you were cursed by God. As a matter of fact, Paul writes... In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Now we've seen Peter's sermons, right? Peter always focuses up to this point on the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. What do you think Paul's going to do? Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And so he's just talked about the death of Jesus. And then in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. He's focusing on the resurrection. And then in verses um, 32, he talks about how this is 
the gospel. Notice verse 32. We bring you the good news that God promised to his fathers. Good news, gospel. This whole message of Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, all that was prophesied in the Old Testament to us as the Jewish people, this is good news. It's good news of salvation. And then in verses uh, 33 through 37, because he's talking to a Jewish audience in the synagogue, the, the Jewish church, if you will, Paul is going to use all of these Old Testament scriptures to talk about how Jesus rose from the dead. He's going to quote Psalm 2. He's going to quote from different Psalms. He's going to pull in all of these verses and basically what he's saying is is that David the ultimate king of Israel he died he was laid in a tomb his body saw corruption every single king of Israel died but Jesus the true king of Israel when they put him in the tomb he did not see corruption he did not see decay he rose again from the grave and so what Paul does here in a very succinct way is take this Jewish audience all the way from God choosing Abraham all the way to the resurrection, using these Old Testament stories to appeal to them as Jews. Now, next week, we're going to see Paul's totally different approach when he appeals to Gentiles, who are mainly us. But we get to verses 38 and 39, which is really where I want to camp out most of this morning on, because I think these two glorious truths Paul proclaims in verses 38 and 39, two truths that we need to hear, Two truths that we need to rest insured in. Two truths that we need to be blessed when we understand what these two truths are. So let's read verses 38 and 39, and let's look at these two glorious truths. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What's the first glorious truth that Paul says? There is forgiveness of sins. Past, present, future. All the sins that you and I would ever commit were forgiven by Jesus on the cross. Ephesians 1, 7 through 8 says this. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So let me just give you some good news here this morning. If you're here this morning and you've sinned, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but all of us should be. If you're here this morning and you've sinned, the good news of the gospel is that every sin that you've ever committed, past, present, and future, if you believe in Jesus Christ and trust him as Lord and Savior, all those sins will be wiped away. Now, there was a, a movie that came out in 2006. It wasn't that popular of a movie. It was more of an independent film. It was the, it was the film called Bella. I don't know if anybody's ever seen the movie Bella, but it's about two people. There are two, two people, Jose and Nina, that lived in New York City. And here's the story of Jose. Jose was a soccer player, an up-and-coming soccer player. He got this contract to be this soccer star. And he and his friend are celebrating, and they're driving in this neighborhood. And all of a sudden, this little girl, this little, this little like two-year-old girl, comes out, and he hits her in his car and kills this two-year-old girl. He is devastated. He is guilt-ridden. He goes and tries to talk to the mother to ask forgiveness, but the mother won't extend to him forgiveness. And so he lives as a shell of a man, guilt-ridden, destroyed, until he meets this woman, Nina. Now, Nina is working in his brother's restaurant. Nina, we find out, had a previous boyfriend. She got pregnant, and she's thinking about having an abortion. 
And this really bothers Jose because he's killed one child. He doesn't want to see another child be killed. And so he begins to talk to Nina. And eventually, at the end of the story, Nina has the baby. Jose ends up adopting the baby, and they live happily ever after. It's a story of redemption. But, But really, what you see through this movie is that Jose is plagued by guilt. He's plagued by shame. And there's a lot of you here this morning that may be plagued by guilt. Sometimes we don't even know why we're guilty. Maybe you feel guilty that I don't spend enough time with my, my spouse. I feel guilty about how I treated my children this morning. I feel guilty because I, I don't know why I feel guilty. I just feel guilty. And sometimes those feelings of guilt gnaw at you. They haunt you. They chase you. They hunt you down. And you have these overwhelming feelings of guilt. But not only does the Bible say we have feelings of guilt, the Bible also says that without Christ, we are guilty. We stand condemned before a holy God in our trespasses, and the only hope for the feelings of guilt and the only hope for our standing of guilt is the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Listen to what Psalm 103, 12 says. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Okay, trivia question for those of you kids that are in science class. When when did the east and west meet? Did they ever meet? So what's God saying there? He throws our sins away. He forgives our sins totally. And so here's the hope that Paul is laying forth and the hope that I'm laying forth for you in the gospel is that no matter what sin you've committed this morning, God can forgive that sin through the power of Jesus Christ. And he can take away the feelings of guilt. He can take away your actual guilt through his cross. And so what Paul says is there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Now, the second truth that Paul gives is a truth that I believe is lost in our culture today. It's lost in our evangelical culture. It's a truth that if you truly understand this next truth that he talks about, it will be an anchor for your soul. Because for me personally, and my personal relationship with Jesus, this is the truth that I keep coming back to over and over again. When I feel depressed, when I feel anxious, when I feel guilty, when I have all these feelings of distress, I come back to this truth of what the Bible says about me in Christ, and it becomes an anchor for my soul. What is this truth that Paul is going to talk about? It's a truth that he fleshes out in more detail in Galatians and in Romans. It's the truth that he's the most famous for. And you may not see it there in the text, but when you look at the original language, you understand what it is. What is this second truth that we're talking about? Now, don't get bogged down by the big word I'm going to use here, but this is the truth. Justification by faith alone. Now, let me explain justification by faith alone. This is the one small instance where I believe the ESV that we normally read out of doesn't give the greatest translation of this word. Actually, the King James Bible, the New International Version, the NIV, actually give a better translation. The ESV says there at the end of verse 38, after Paul talks about forgiveness, it says, By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The ESV uses the word freed. The actual word there is justified. Justified. Let me read to you what the NIV says. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. So Paul's making a comparison between the law of Moses and faith in Christ. Now, what's the law of Moses? What's he talking about here? 
And there's a lot of laws of Moses if you go back to Leviticus and Exodus and Deuteronomy, but it's most clearly summarized in the Ten Commandments. And what Paul is saying is that none of us here can perfectly keep the Ten Commandments. How many of you here have ever kept the Ten Commandments 100% of the time, 100% perfectly, your entire life, in thought, in word, and in deed? If you have, I want to see you after the service because you've broken one of the commandments. It's called lying, okay? Being a good person does not give you in right standing with God. Trying hard to obey the Ten Commandments does not get you accepted by God. And here's what a lot of people think when they, when they look at their lives. They say, okay, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and so at the end of my life, because my good deeds were better, somehow God's going to let me in. God doesn't do it that way. You've got to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So none of us here can ever live up to the standard of what God calls us to live up to in the law of God. And here's, this, here's the big lie of our culture because, see, all of us are hardwired to want to somehow earn approval from God. Every other world religion has merit-based in their belief system. Everything's based upon a merit. What do I do? What do I contribute? What do I bring to the table to somehow make whatever God it is I believe in accept me? Think about Buddhism for a moment. Buddhism says, I'm going to try really hard to empty my mind, to reach a state of nirvana, to get good karma, to do good deeds, to, 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 to hopefully be reincarnated to something better in the next life than I was in this life. But in the end, it's all based upon what I do to somehow earn favor with whatever God it is out there. But again, it all boils down on what I do. Think about Hinduism for a moment. Now, I spent time in India. We're going back there. Hinduism keeps people in fear. There's a million different gods in Hinduism. And you're not really sure what these gods' names are or what they do, but the people in India are living in fear that they've done enough. And so they may go to a temple. They may burn incense. They may go ask for a holy person to pray for them. But again, you're not quite sure if you've pleased all these gods, and so you have to do something. Think about Islam for a moment, the Muslim religion. They have a false god called Allah. And you have to do a lot of things to be in the good graces of Allah, whether it's pilgrimage to Mecca, whether it's saying prayers, whether it's um, giving, ta- or giving um, alms. Again, it's all the things that you've got to do to somehow please this God, Allah, and at the end of the day, you really don't know if you've done enough. You really don't know if you're going to go to heaven or paradise after you've done everything in this world to please Allah. Okay, those are world religions. Think about spiritualism for a moment. Let's say you don't subscribe to a world religion. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to someone, and maybe they've said this to you. I'm not religious, but I'm what? Spiritual. There's a lot of people that are spiritual. I really don't know what that means, and I don't think they know what that means, but when you ask them what spiritual means, it's it's really a hodgepodge of all these different belief systems coming together, but at the end of the day, it's what I do to somehow make myself happy, to somehow be the God of my own self. There really is no basis, but still, I'm living up to a standard that I've set of spiritualism, and I've got to do some things to somehow be spiritual. Now, think about someone that's really big into the environment. Now, I'm not against being big into the environment, but let's say the environment is your religion. You're an environmentalist religiously, okay? You drive a Prius. You get mad if people don't recycle. You give a tenth of your income to Greenpeace, and you're very intolerant of anybody else that doesn't recycle, okay? Okay? because they're making a huge carbon footprint. You're an environmentalist, religiously. 
You may not even believe that there is a God, but what are you doing? You have a cause that you're believing in, and you're going to work and do everything you can to uphold that cause because at the end of the day, you think that cause is what gives you value. And so you're still doing merit based upon whatever it is you believe. Now listen to me very carefully on this next statement. Christianity is the only system in the world that has merit. But the tables are turned, okay? Pay attention to this one. Christianity is a merit-based religion but it's not based upon your and mine's merit. It's based upon Christ's merit, what Jesus Christ did in our place. It's a different standard. You see, the merit doesn't lie within us. The performance doesn't rely within us. The record doesn't lie within us. It lies in Jesus. And so here's what justification by faith is. It says Jesus lived a perfect life, He did everything God told him to do in thought, word, and deed. He perfectly obeyed the Ten Commandments. And when you trust Jesus for salvation, his perfect record is given to you so that God looks at your life and sees the perfect record of Jesus. And on the basis of that, God can say not guilty. God can say innocent. God can say you are no longer under condemnation. That's what justifies us. Faith in Christ, his record his merit, not trying to do things to earn that. I've often said this, salvation is a receiving, not an achieving. We don't achieve salvation. We don't earn salvation. God's not obligated to save us by how how we perform. It's a gift. As a matter of fact, the Bible says salvation is a free gift from God by grace. Romans 3, 23 through 24. You're probably very familiar with this passage of Scripture. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Romans 4, 4 through 5 are probably some of the most important words of Paul in the book of Romans. Now to the one who works or earns or does, his wages are not counted as a gift but as due. And to the one who does not work, does not earn, does not try to do good works, but trusts, believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, why is this doctrine of justification by faith alone so important? Why is it an anchor for your soul? Here's why. Because it tells you and me that we are permanently accepted by this great God. And he will never leave and forsake us. And he looks upon us as not guilty. Even though we may have sin in our life, that sin's not going to go away until we step foot in heaven. But in God's record-keeping system, he looks down upon our life and he says, I love you. And so here's what it tells us. On our worst days, when you're doing things terrible, and you're walking in disobedience, and maybe you're sinning flagrantly, and you're doing things you're not supposed to do, and you're a truly believer, it says on your worst day, God does not love you less based upon your performance. It also says this, on your best days, when you got all cylinders running, when you're obeying God, when you're walking in obedience, when you're doing the right thing, God doesn't love you more based upon your performance. God loves you based upon Christ's performance. That's a big difference. And you can rest in the fact that when our performance stinks or when our performance shines, whose record does God look at? Christ's. And Christ is our anchor. 
He sees not our performance, but the performance of Christ. And on the basis of Christ's performance, what can God do? God smiles upon us. God accepts us. God loves us. God forgives us, not because of how we perform. I'm afraid so many Christians are, are, are trapped in the performance base. If I perform low, God loves me less. If I perform really high, God loves me more. And so I better perform good so God can, can love me more. And if I perform really bad, man, I may have lost my salvation. So you're living in this tension of either despair on one end that I, maybe I've lost it all, or you're living in pride on one end thinking God must owe me love because of how I performed. It doesn't matter how you and I perform it's on Christ's performance. Now, that's not an excuse to go out and live however you want, okay? It's not an excuse to say, I love sinning, God loves forgiving, that's a great relationship. It's not an excuse to do that. But what it says is that your standing, your record before a holy God is one of innocence because of the record of Christ. And that's what Paul says. Paul says what you couldn't get through the law of Moses, what you couldn't get through, through earning your way, what you couldn't get through the Ten Commandments, Christ has offered to you by faith in his name. Now, after giving this Old Testament foundation, moving to the New Testament of Jesus, holding up forgiveness of sins, justification by faith, Paul's going to issue a warning to his listeners. So let's continue reading. Let's pick up in verse 40. Beware, beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets. Now, he's going he's to quote here from Habakkuk chapter 1. This is a quote there from Habakkuk. Should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Okay, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, Jews... Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This means that they're never going to witness to Jews again. It just means that their missionary method is to go to the Jew first. If the Jew don't accept it, they're going to go to the Gentiles. For as the Lord is commanding us, this is from um, Isaiah 49, 6, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout men of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, what we see from this episode are three responses to the gospel. Paul, from here on out in Acts, you're going to see three things happen to Paul. And these three things will happen to you. If you live a godly life, if you begin to tell other people about Jesus, if you begin to live what it means to be a Christian, you're going to have these three responses, the same three responses that Paul does. The first one is curiosity. What happens? The people say, come back next week. This is, a, this is an interesting thing. We want to hear more. And the, the next week, what does it say? The whole town shows up to hear what's going on. There's curiosity. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody is going to believe the message. It just means that because of what you've said, because of your lifestyle, there's going to be some people that say, you know what, I want to hear more about this. This is curious. This is interesting. I'm curious about what you believe. And so that's what happens. 
Now, here's the second response, the one that we don't want to have, contempt. There's going to be curiosity, but there's going to be contempt, hatred, if you will. What do the Jews there do? They, they start blaspheming against Paul. They begin reviling against Paul. They begin to make fun of Paul. They basically incite a riot and persecute him, and Paul and Barnabas have to get out of town. And so you're going to see contempt. Now, if you don't believe this, it will happen. If you speak up for Jesus Christ in this culture, you will be hated. It's not if you're going to be hated, it's when. Just ask Kurt Cameron when he goes on Piers Morgan and talks about sexual preferences. I'll leave you to look on Google for that. But there is contempt. There's hatred. But then, in verse 48, we see another response. There's curiosity. I want to know more. There's contempt. I hate what you're saying. But the third response is conversion. People get saved. People believe the gospel. People believe in Jesus. Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This is an example of sovereign grace here in the book of Acts. Here's a question for you. What comes first, the believing or being appointed to eternal life? The reason that these people believe is because they were already appointed to believe. Why in the world does someone come to faith in Christ? It's because they were chosen before the foundation of the world to be saved. At this preaching moment, when Paul and Barnabas are preaching to this audience, there was a fixed number who God had chosen before the foundation of the world to believe, and based upon God's sovereign choice, this group of people believed. Where do we find else this speaks about in the Bible? Ephesians 1, 4-5. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. When did God predestine us? Before the creation of the world. Many as who were appointed believed. Why do people believe? Because they were chosen to believe. Second Timothy 1, 8-9. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. When did God give us this grace? Before the ages began. Why did he give us this grace? Was it anything that we had done? No, the Bible says right there, it's not anything that we had done. It was according to his own purpose and grace. Now, there's a lot of different opinions out there about predestination. All I want to show you is that there's a verse here that says the reason that they believed was because they were priorly chosen to believe. So you're going to have three responses when you go forth with the gospel. Curiosity, I want to hear more. Contempt, I hate what you're saying. Conversion, I love Jesus. I want to obey him. But look at verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Now I just need to stop here and say something. Those of us who believe in sovereign predestination, the question we often get is, well then why in the world share the gospel? 
If God has a predetermined amount of people who are going to be saved, why do you share the gospel anyway? And the answer is, is because God saves people through the sharing of the gospel. But I want you to notice that you got this verse on election, but right before it and right under it, what do you have? What's the verse right before it? I will make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation where? To the ends of the earth. So where's Paul going? To the ends of the earth. Where do we go? We go to India. We go to Russia. We go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Okay, verse on election. Next verse, verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So, contrary to popular belief, for those of us that believe in sovereign predestination, God doesn't save just a small amount of people. Some people think, well, if you believe in election, it means that God just saves a small number of people. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say it's a small number of people. As a matter of fact, the Bible says it's a large number of people. If you look at the book of Revelation, it's, it's a multitude that no one could count, as, as numerous as the stars are in the sky and the sand is on the seashore. And so here's why we do evangelism. We go out with the gospel and the confidence of knowing that someone's going to believe. Because God has predestined their belief. Now, there's going to be people that don't believe. There's going to be people that are be curious. There's going to be people that are, that are, that are, um, that are, that are contemptuous, that, are, that hate us. But there are going to be some people that will believe. And here's the issue. Why do they believe? Why do they believe when, they, when you tell them? Is it because of your personality? You're so, you're so persuasive. You've got such a winsome personality. Is it because of your cleverness? Is it because of your tactics? Is there anything in you that would make someone believe in Jesus? I look at my life and it gives me great confidence to go out with the gospel thinking, man, if it was all up to me and if it's all up to my persuasion, it's all up to my personality, it's all up to my power, if it's all up to me to somehow cajole a decision out of someone, it may never happen because I may stumble in my words and I may not be that persuasive. I go with the the power and authority to know that when I open my mouth, some will believe and some won't, but because there's the doctrine of election, I know that some will believe and it will be because God has done that work in them. Okay, enough on that. Let's move on. They shake the dust off their feet. The word spreads. The word spreads like wildfires. We just see in the book of Acts, when the gospel goes out, there's either riots or revival, okay? People getting angry or people getting saved. And who gets angry? The Gentiles are getting saved, but verse 50, the Jews incited the devout women, the devout women of high standing and leading people of city, and they drove Paul and Barnabas out, so they shook their dust off them. Now, why did they shake their dust off them? They're just following what Jesus said in Luke 9, 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Basically saying, okay, this is not a good place to be. They're not receptive to the word. We're going to get killed. It may be a good idea for us just to kind of shake the dust off our feet and move on. But we did see God do a great work of saving many. Now, what's the ultimate end of all this mayhem? Okay, you've got mayhem. You've got, you've got anger. You've got a lot of people getting saved. It's just this huge ultimate experience of, of God's grace coming down on the Gentiles, uh, the, the, the Jews getting mad. Look at that last verse. It's so interesting how Luke, if you pay attention to Acts, it's interesting these little tidbits that Luke puts in there just to kind of heighten our attention. What does he put at the very end of this, of this chapter? And in the midst of all this mayhem, verse 52, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What happens when you experience conversion? When you come to the point where you realize that I was dead in my sin, 
I was an enemy of God. I cannot keep the law. I cannot do anything to earn God's salvation. He simply saves me by grace. He forgives all of my sins, past, present, and future. He credits to me his righteousness. He loves me. He leaves me, or he never leaves me. He never forsakes me. He, I have, I'm in the palm of his hand. But what happens when you begin to believe that? You should be the most joyful person on the planet. If you are not joyful as a Christian, then we would have to say, Houston, there's a problem. Because conversion produces joy. Because why? You're given the Holy Spirit. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they were filled with joy. What's one of the fruit of the Spirit that he gives you? Joy. Now Paul in another place in 1 Thessalonians spoke about how the gospel comes to a people in salvation and they experience the joy of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 6. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but how did our gospel come to you? In power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The gospel came to you in power, and you received it, Thessalonian Christians, in the midst of trials, and when we get to the Thessalonians in, in chapter 17, we'll find out they were heavily persecuted. But in the midst of all this persecution, they received Jesus, and what happens? They receive the joy of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you a question. What is joy? First and foremost, it's not a feeling, okay? There's feelings involved, in, but if all joy was was a feeling, then our joy would be based upon what? Our feelings, how good we felt one day and how bad we felt the next day. Let me give you a definition of joy. I gave this a few months ago, but let me give it again. This is Sean's definition. It's, it's uninspired. It may not be that profound, but it's the best way I can word it. Here it is. Joy is a deep-seated sense of peace, contentment, and satisfaction in Christ alone that does not depend upon circumstances, but rest in the unchanging grace of God. So do you have joy this morning? In other words, do you have a deep-seated sense of peace? Do you have contentment? Are you resting in Christ alone? Or are you worried about all the circumstances that are going on around you? You see, all the circumstances going on around you could be very terrible, but you can still have joy in the midst of it because you rest in God's unchanging love for you. Does God's love for you change? No. God's love for you is constant, based not upon your performance, but upon Christ's performance. And so at your worst day and at your best day, when you're going, when you're on the top of the mountain, when you're in the bottom of the valley, God's unchanging grace comes to you through Jesus Christ. And notice what the disciples, those Gentiles said in verse 48, when they heard this. When they heard what? When they heard this, the fact that Jesus died and rose again and then he's coming back and that there's forgiveness of sins and that you could have a right relationship with God. What did, how did they respond? They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. Are you plagued by guilt this morning? If you're plagued by guilt, let me give you hope. The gospel says Jesus Christ can forgive you all your sins and take away your guilt. Are you trying to earn God's approval this morning? Are you trying to somehow be good enough, whatever standard of good that may be? Or is there something you're trying to do to win approval from God or whatever God you believe in? The gospel says, stop. Jesus earned that for you on the cross. And maybe for some of us, we've lost the joy of our salvation. You can't lose your salvation, but you can lose the joy of your salvation. 
And so if you've lost the joy of your salvation, the answer is not to muster up within yourself some excitement. I've got to get excited about Jesus. Again, th- that's all human-based emotion that, 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 that can, that can um, fluctuate. Here's how you rejo- restu- restore the joy of your salvation. You don't look at yourself. You look outside of yourself at Jesus. You look at what Christ has accomplished on the cross. You think about forgiveness of sin. You think about justification by faith. You think about his love. And when you contemplate those things, then the Holy Spirit who's in you gives you the joy when you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Do you have the joy of knowing this Christ as Savior and Lord? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Do you have that deep-seated contentment, peace, satisfaction in Christ alone that does not rest or is based on your circumstances but trust and rest in the unchanging love of God? Do you have joy this morning in the Lord? Do you have the joy of your salvation? Spend some time either, number one, thanking God that you are saved, or number two, if you're here this morning and you, ne- and you haven't experienced the forgiveness of sins, if you haven't experienced this right relationship with God, cry out to him this morning because the Bible says all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you can be saved this morning by crying out to Jesus and asking him to forgive you and confessing him as Lord and, and surrendering and saying, I'm not going to try to earn it anymore. I'm just going to trust in what Christ has done for me. The Bible says if you trust and repent, you'll be saved. So spend some time alone with the Lord this morning. That you didn't have to love us, but you did. And Lord, so many times we're fooled into thinking we can somehow earn our salvation or we can somehow atone for our own sins. We can somehow try to work out a forgiveness plan with you by doing enough good to somehow weigh out the bad in our lives. And Lord, help us to realize that it doesn't matter what we try to accomplish for you. It's all about what Jesus, you accomplished for us on the cross. And my prayer here this morning, Lord, is that we would all experience the joy of our salvation. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Would we be a people that rejoices and glorifies the word of the Lord because you've saved us, Lord Jesus? And Lord, I know there's many in this room that may have never trusted you for salvation, and they may think that they're joyful, but, but, but Lord, it's fleeting. It may be happiness that comes and goes, but not a true deep-seated joy. And so would you work on hearts this morning, Holy Spirit, to, to truly bring about the salvation of sinners that everyone in this room would leave knowing you personally, Jesus, knowing the joy of their salvation, knowing their sins have been forgiven, knowing they have a right record with you, knowing they have eternal life. Would nobody leave this place without knowing that by repenting of their sins and trusting in you? Would you do a great work in our hearts this morning, Lord Jesus? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.